This is the end of the year, my friends. Welcome back to the Eco-Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Cray Haynes, and we're exploring what it means to be Christian on planet Earth as we have been. And today, co-hosting with me, the one and only Michaela Johnson is back. And for the end of this year, 2023, Today we're having a chat with the president of Interfaith Power and Light, Reverend Susan Hendershot. And we're taking a sober look at what just transpired at the United Nations Conference on Climate Change in Dubai and what it has to do with your local faith body. So let's do it. Okay, friends, uh, welcome back to the Eco-Christian Podcast. Uh, today, I'm excited to be co-hosting this episode with Michaela Johnson, who uh, co-labors with me in the Lord in Creation Care. Uh, and we're just really excited today to be with uh, none other than the Reverend Susan Hendershot. Um, just a little bit about her, if you don't know, she serves as the president of Interfaith Power and Light, and she's been doing that since 2018. And uh, she was raised outside of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, attended Bethany College in West Virginia, where she graduated with a BA in Religious Studies, later attended Emory, where she received her Master's of Divinity from Candler, which is awesome, and uh, was ordained in the Christian Church, uh, Disciples of Christ. And you served as a pastor in local congregations for a while, focusing on social justice. And Reverend Hendershaw also led... Um, faith-based nonprofit organizations uh, and served as the first Heartland Field organizer for the One Campaign on Global Poverty, which is really cool. And you even were, you were the executive director in Iowa, is that right, before you um, became the president? Yeah, that's correct. For IPL? Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, how are you doing today? Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be with both of you, Caleb and Michaela. And um Really excited for our conversation today, and yeah, you you encapsulated my my biography very well. Your trajectory, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, man, and biographies are so hard. You know, you get these cliff notes, but there's the the meat's underneath. So it's uh, true. Yeah. So what what we're doing, we're trying to have more kind of down to earth conversations for Christians on these issues, and really, what I've found over the years is while there are many good resources out there connecting Christians with dialogue around creation care, it can quickly get to a point where the content, uh, you know, gets heavy or is flying over our heads. And, uh, you know, you may not be, quote, in the know on a lot of what's happening in the world environmentally. So we're trying to work to sort of ground the conversation more. Um, and I can't think of a better way to end this year than, than talking with you, Susan. And one letting people in on the great resource of interfaith power and light, uh, but also having kind of a sober reflection on the state of our climate and how we as a people of faith can engage in this work of climate justice. So, um, yeah, but, but first maybe, um, and Michaela jump, jump in and out as you, as you see fit. Uh, so, but, but I'd love to hear Susan a little bit about your eco journey uh, you can give us as much as or as little as you you like, but how did this intersection between creation and your faith sort of spring to life for you? 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for asking. I, I mean, I think our stories are important and often are relatable for folks. And and I would say, um, first of all, I, I grew up, as you said, outside of Cleveland uh, in a blue collar family. Um, I would never have considered myself an environmentalist uh, as I was growing up. Um, I was a child who loved to play outside. That's how I would sort of identify myself. And um, we, you know, I spent a lot of time out, outside as a kid. Um, we had a pond at the the end of our street where I used to go ice skating and my brother and I would go fishing. And uh, every summer my family would take one week to, to rent a cabin in Vermont and we would do a, we would just spend a lot of time outside you know in the trees and walking down the stream uh, together and staring at all the little water bugs and and fish and so on and um, and I just you know I just loved all of that as a kid and I think really importantly um, you know like so many folks I I went to church camp when I was growing up our our church uh, in Christian Church Disciples of Christ had a camp in Ohio uh, where we would go for one week every summer. And, um, you know, if, if you've been involved in church camp at all, you know that there's a lot of time outdoors in nature. And um, we had a beautiful outdoor chapel area where we worshiped uh, in the evening together. And um, it was just a really important part of my own spiritual formation as a young person, um, and it's really where I felt a calling to go into ministry. I didn't really know what that meant at the time, you know, what form that would take. Um, but, you know, I went I went to college as a religious studies major, um, really just loved um, learning about not, on, not only my own um, tradition and, and uh, the Christian scriptures, but learning also about other, uh, religious traditions and, um, you know, what, how they talked about the spiritual journey as well. Uh, and so, you know, went on to seminary, um, went, moved to Iowa uh, for a job and was ordained in Iowa and um, served at four different congregations in Iowa. Uh, and always a part of that um, piece of my work of my ministry work uh, was really focused on on social justice issues it was really trying to understand the the issues that were you know harming our communities for example um, the issue that I think I was most really passionate about at the time was the issue of hunger and looking at how hunger, impacted families in our own community, but as well, you know, uh, faith communities are are connected globally to many other sister congregations and looking at how uh, other parts of the world were being impacted by the issue of hunger. Um, so the congregations that I served spent a lot of time uh, in hunger ministry as well as, as other social justice um, work related um, particularly to poverty. And it was while I was doing that work that that I started understanding and being connected a little more to the issue of of climate change and um, environmental justice, and that in particular came to me uh, very 
<laughs> one of those aha moments where I, I read an article about the geopolitics of food that connected the dots for me between the issue of, um, you know, hunger, crop, you know, crop losses globally that were um, fueled by climate change and um, the resulting food shortages in, in places in the world. And, you know, recognize that if I really wanted to do something about the issue of hunger, that I needed to work on climate change, that it wasn't a siloed issue. It was intersected mm-hmm. to the to the work that I was already doing. Um, and so I was lucky enough to um, sort of fall into this position as the director of Iowa Interfaith Power and Light, which uh, had an opening at the time. Um, and so I, I left the local church that I was serving and moved into that ministry, which has become my full-time ministry. Um, and and I I think that um, it's it's really, well, first of all, I'll say, I wish I didn't have to do that work, right? Like the ideal mm-hmm. is to work myself out of a job because we have solved the issue and, and we don't have to do it. Um, but I think for me, the, the connection between being able to work on climate, ecology, environmental justice, and to do it within a faith-based organization has been an incredible opportunity because I've always felt that um, every social issue that we've ever had to address, we, we've been able to move forward because of the work of people of faith. Um, you know, so you can look at women's rights, you can look at civil rights movement, um, so many movements across um, the U.S. and globally, and they've been led by people of faith. And so I think that that our work is really is really key to this, to solving this issue. So good. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. It's um, it's no small task to consolidate uh, a journey like that. <laughs> so you probably had some practice. But uh, yeah, I, I love how so many of our stories begins with uh, that curiosity as as a kid in the natural world, and then as as we grow, like there's so much opportunity to connect these dots. It seems infinitely, but um, you know. So I, I wanted to. I do. I do want to get into sort of like uh, what happened in the UN, the climate conference, and all that. But I want to make sure that our listeners get a chance to to. I'd like to sit here for a minute because I think you're raising some really interesting points and. Uh, and especially sort of as you, uh, you know, direct our president of IPL, uh, which if our listeners don't know, um, it's Interfaith Power and Light. And while it may sound like an electric company, it's actually one of my favorite creation care organizations uh, to share with people about because I love what you guys are up to because it reminds me of the real work, I guess, on the on the ground locally, you know, and I know that you guys have state chapters and I think, mm-hmm. Is it all fifty states now? We're we're in about forty states now. We have okay. supporters in all fifty states, okay. um, but actual affiliates we we are in forty states. And you're right; the the work is very, uh, very rooted in community. So, you know, our local affiliates uh, are connected to religious leaders, um, faith communities that are, you know exist within their state, within their their communities, and they're working on issues that um, touch folks in those communities. So while as an organization, 
Um, our mission is to inspire and mobilize people of faith and conscience to take bold and just action on climate change. Our state affiliates really contextualize that mission to look at what are the actual issues happening on the ground in those states and where, you know, where the best ways for them to um, to advocate for change. So it might be, um, for example, in some communities, it's it's around oil and gas infrastructure, like in our New Mexico affiliate. You know, they're act very actively working on that issue. Um, in Georgia, they're working to protect uh, the Okefenokee. So, um, you know, looking at like, what are the, the things that are touching people in those communities? And I think that's one of the real strengths about Interfaith Power and Light is we, we have both this very firm grassroots uh, presence across the country, and then we also do work at the at the national level on federal policy advocacy. Fed, you know, we have programs that we run, um, as well as you indicated the work that we're doing uh, at at the UN at the COP level. So um, it's it's the beauty of of the network approach, I think. Yeah. Um, so kind of going back to what you were saying about, um, you know, you feel that or have seen or, you know, that if we look back on history, it's it's faith communities who seem to be, yeah, you know, who have led the way on a lot of these like changes in society. And I think that's really powerful to to think about, um, you know, and I'm I'm sure directing IPL, you know, you kind of keep your finger on that on that pulse. But I think for a lot of faith communities, if we're honest, sometimes it feels very distant or or separate from uh, from our faith, especially when we think about larger level climate change and these sorts of things. So I wonder if you could say just, you know, some more about that and and how important, you know, would you say it is for faith community involvement in these issues and and maybe how you've seen these connections and, and faith communities engage in this in this work a little bit more. And do do churches have a special role to play there? I, I, I think that's kind of an inter interesting thing to dig into a little bit. Yeah, wow, that's that's a big question, uh, and it's sure. it's great. Um, so one of the things that that we have done with some of our programs is is we we take some time with folks to to ask a few questions. Um, so the first question we would ask is, um, what is it that you love about the Earth? <laughs> it's a pretty pretty basic question, but um, I'm always just so. I don't know. It, it's thrilling to hear the the kinds of responses that you get because um, often the natural world is where people feel closest to the sacred. Um, you know, if you say to people, "Where where do you feel you know God's presence?" Um, yeah, some people might say it's within the four walls of their church, but you know, a lot of people say it was you know by the ocean or in the mountains or, you know, something where there's, they just have this moment of awe that they feel and this connection. Um, and, and so I think those are really beautiful places to begin because I think that as humans, we protect what we love. And, uh, if we love the beauty of God's creation, then we are more likely to want to protect the beauty of God's creation. Um, so that's a that's a nice place to just start a conversation and connect with folks. Um, we also ask people, um, 
what concerns them most about the issue of climate change? Because um, a lot of people, whether they will talk about it in public or not, have a concern. A lot of times we find that has to do with the the future that their children or, or grandchildren will be inheriting and what will the world be like, um, you know, 20, 50 years from now, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think just, again, recognizing that people, even if they're not public about their, their concerns, are actually thinking about this issue. And we're finding that more and more as we see we suffer from more and more extreme weather events, even here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, the third question would be, what does your spiritual tradition have to say about caring for creation? Because most uh, faith traditions have some kind of statement uh, that they have put out, and and sometimes folks are surprised to know that you know their their um, particular denomination has a statement about creation care, but many of them do, and it's and it's nice for them to see and understand what their own tradition has to say. Um, and then we ask people, what is your own spiritual motivation for doing something about it? And this is where I think it it really becomes personalized. You know, if 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 folks see themselves in um, in this work in some way, then they're more likely to to follow through. So it, it to your point, it doesn't feel big and far away. It feels um, personal and close. And you know, I think there was a time when you would ask a question to someone about climate change, and they would say, "Well, that's just polar bears and ice caps," and it and it mm. really did feel far away. Mm. Um, the truth is. It impacts people (laughs) Um, and it impacts people that they love and places that they love. And, you know, as people of faith, we're also called to care for those who are vulnerable and it impacts vulnerable people first and worst and longest. Um, So oftentimes these are ways to connect with people in a way that can personalize the issue for them and help them to see also that there are ways that they can have an impact um, because I think that's the other thing we see is that when people feel like the issue is too big, that my little contribution isn't going to make a difference. And so why, you know, why should I bother if, you know, <laughs> if, if tending my own garden is too small, right, then, then yeah. um, you know, sometimes we're prone to despair and throwing our arms up. And, and, um, and that bringing people into a place where they can see that it is the sort of combined total of our work Mm -hmm. together in community that makes the difference, then my personal contribution no longer seems small. It Mm -hmm. seems like a necessary part of the whole. Yeah, definitely. a, A very body of Christ kind of thing, right? You know, can't lose the pinkies and the kneecaps and the, you know, all the parts of us. And uh, I'm interested to hear if you've had any, off the top of your head, a hopeful conversation you've had. You mentioned, you know, that you come from a blue-collar family. I also do from a farm town. And so sometimes folks that I talk to are like, this isn't, this isn't matter to me. I don't want to make these changes because I got to put food on the table. I still have to live and survive and take care of my family. Uh, and having... A deeper conversation and nuanced conversation, getting to know people, you can connect dots that they may not have before and have some hopeful conversation about it. So is there 
anything that you can think of uh, along those lines that you've just been encouraged by um, this kind of tough conversation we might have with people, uh, but actually it came, uh, something fruitful came from it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that question I, it, because it, it is really about relationships. It's about, you know, <laughs> so much of life is about building relationships. And, um, you know, I, I've had conversations with faith leaders and, you know, having been in that role in a local congregation myself, I understand the sense of overwhelm that faith leaders have a lot of the time. There's so many things competing for their attention, um, both within the congregation itself and then also, you know, the issues that their communities are facing and so on. And I, I think that we have to start from a, a, a position of, of listening and understanding. Um, I think to come in and preach to a group of religious leaders about why they should care about climate change is not the right approach, uh, especially for a group of people who have so much on their plates already. But I think coming in and listening to the concerns that they have, what are the issues that their congregations are most focused on? Um, you know, what what are their even their capacity, right? What's what are their capacity constraints for working on on various things? Oftentimes what we can find is that a faith community is already very focused on one or two issues that impact their community. Like I said, my personal story is that it was hunger and poverty. Um, and, and, and to be able to hear that, to, to be able to listen to a faith leader who says, well, my congregation is very focused on the issue of immigration. It's very close to our hearts. It impacts our community. Um, you know, this is this is what we have time for. And for for us to be able to help them understand the intersection that the issue of immigration has with climate change and climate migration um, can can often open a door. Um, it's not to say that they're going to put 100 percent of their effort into working on climate change, but they're going to more deeply understand some of the ways that climate change exacerbates the issue that they're already working on and already very passionate about. So I think um, coming in with a spirit of openness, coming in with a spirit of of listening and understanding um, can can pave the way for a deeper understanding around how climate and environmental justice are ha are already having an impact or exacerbating that existing um, passion of that community um, is a really important way to build those relationships of trust. Yeah, the intersectionality is so important. You know, if we can help people understand how our lives affect other people's lives and how this whole thing is just one big spider web, then it that action piece might be a little easier for some folks to say, oh, this isn't this isn't a completely different issue. You know, like mm -hmm. don't touch, I don't have to say, no, I do this, not that. Uh, there's really just it's all gray all together. right yeah and we have you know our we run a program called cool congregations uh, which i would encourage folks to to look at um and we have a number of categories in in uh, cool congregations that 
we work specifically with congregations on. And so, you know, one one area, for example, is renewable energy. You know, we're encouraging them to install solar and so on. Um, we have sacred a sacred grounds category where they look at how their land is used around um, their buildings because we know actually faith communities own a lot of of land, a lot of property, um, and so how we use our land is important. Um, we also have you know community inspiration categories where you're looking you know at how how is the work that we're doing inspiring our own faith community to take action as well as how is it connecting to the wider community around us whether that's other faith communities uh who are here close by or um you know working oftentimes we need to work with local governments or local businesses to to make um change and uh inspire what's going on in our community for the better so uh, it's, you know, it's a great way, this piece around building relationships and being really centered in the, the community itself. I think um, this is just an expression of that. It's really, that's really great to sort of frame, uh, frame it. And I think, it, you know, what we're talking about here, we're kind of in the clouds a little bit, but and uh, in, in, in trying to draw down the lines of, of this and this and this, uh, but also all of it. Uh, you know, in some way. And so that's, that's kind of like, uh, so I recently, uh, had a conversation, uh, you know, connection via connection with uh, a really nice young lady who is at MIT and she's, she's researching, she's doing her doctoral work on sort of like Christian environmental, uh, movement and interested in whether how attitudes and changes, uh, in response to religious appeals are making a difference or not, you know, and it's like, you know, that's kind of a hard thing to quantify. Uh, you know, that's kind of a, like, I don't know how you get data from that, but, uh, but, but yet you do see you, there is a movement there. There is such a thing as like faith communities, like, uh, as you, as you again said earlier, like are on the forefront leading the way of, of these changes over the arc of time. And it's, and, and often it's, it's later when we look back that, that we see these movements, um, maybe not necessarily, as it's happening, but yeah, I'd love to sort of turn a corner uh, for a second and talk a little bit about uh, COP uh, that that just happened, and um, and then again, kind of double back to some maybe more practical steps. But you know, already uh, as, as we know, right, average world temperatures uh, you know have risen about one point one to one point two degrees since the late eighteen hundreds, and scientists say the planet you know right now is on track to eclipse even perhaps the 1.5 uh degrees celsius in the 2030s and so you know they're saying now that this last summer in 2023 was the hottest on record a new report found that the past 12 months were the hottest of the modern era so top 28 just ended in dubai and it's the it was the 28th united nations gathering basically that seeks solutions for climate change and, and world leaders and nations are present from from uh, countries all over the world. And because, uh, you know, and I, and I realize that sometimes I talk about COP as if everyone is nerding out on this stuff um, like we are. But, you know, but but often I, I think for the majority of us, we probably don't even know that it's going on every year uh, in November. Uh, but you you were there. That's right. In Dubai. I was there. This is uh, this is my fourth 
COP that I've attended. So I, I started in uh, 2019 in Madrid, and then of course 2020 we skipped, uh, and then um, then I I was in Glasgow, and then uh, Egypt last year, and Dubai this year. Uh, so yeah, nerding out on it. That's <laughs> that's right. One way to put it, uh, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I so I I want to say um, I want to talk about just for a moment about IPL strategy around sort of why, you know, why do we show up for the COP? Because um, I think it's important, you know, folks are like, you know, why, why do all these groups spend money and the carbon budget to go to these places and be part of this? And um, we are an organization that is accredited by the United Nations um, for the, UNFCCC or the COP as as we call it, um, and what that means. So we are we are a an observer organization. That's that's what we're known as, um, and part of civil society. So faith based organizations are part of civil society, and and I take that word observer pretty seriously. Um, so the idea is that we are there to observe. We're there to to follow the negotiations to, you know, we can, you know, if sit in the back of the room and listen to some of the negotiations themselves. There are a lot of other events that take place at, at the COP, um, you know, side events. There are pavilions. All different countries have pavilions where they do their own um, programming, including the U.S. And uh, as well, this year, for the first time ever, there was a faith pavilion at a COP, which I think is a significant development. And there was programming uh, within that faith pavilion from groups, uh, something like, uh, you know, 130 different organizations, um, 60 different sessions that took place during the two weeks. Our, we see our role at Interfaith Power and Light um, because of the work that we do on federal policy advocacy, part of what we're doing is we are looking to see what what are the promises and <laughs> words that the U.S. is using uh, at the COP, and um, what what needs to happen. So you know, our negotiators in the U.S. can't make promises in the global arena that we can't deliver on at home. And we know that some of that has to happen through uh, through Congress. It has to happen through federal agencies and rulemaking, um, for example. Uh, so we're there in part to see what are the the levers that we need to pull at home in order to to ensure that we are as ambitious as possible in our goals and our promises at the global level. So it's important to note that a lot of what we see our role as at the COP is still holding the U.S. accountable um, for, you know, for what we're saying and what we're what we're doing and how we're partnering with with other nations and so on. Um, an, but another thing that we're doing that I think is is really the most important role that faith communities play at the COP is um, that we provide a moral voice in the negotiations mm. and we are speaking about the role of faith communities what is the work that faith communities are already doing um 
<laughs> from this listening to various sessions at the Faith Pavilion, it's a lot of things. You know, it's everything from providing education to our members about creation care and ecology. Uh, it is, you know, actual work that is happening in faith communities around uh, becoming fossil fuel free in in their uh, buildings and their facilities. Uh, it is advocacy work that we are doing on policy um, in places in countries all over the world. It is how we are handling our finances. You know, what do we do with our money? You know, our our the ways that we use our money are, you know, moral and ethical, we hope, ways. Uh, and, and how are we advancing that by sort of disinvesting in fossil fuels, for example? Um, so I think it's it's really important that the, I don't think that we can just underestimate the value of the faith voice at the COP, especially when we think that 85% of the world's population subscribes to some kind of spiritual or religious tradition. Um, so whether our negotiators are cognizant of it or not, their values, the spiritual and religious values that they adhere to, we hope are influencing the ways that they are able to negotiate in good faith in uh, in the global arena. So um, again, I just think it's, it's incredibly important for all kinds of ways. One, because we're already modeling behavior, um, but two, because we have to acknowledge that um, our values play a significant role in the outcomes of, of any of these negotiations. Yeah. So this was uh, going back to uh, the Faith Pavilion. Uh, was this the first time that has happened? Just wrapping my mind around it. This was kind of like a conference within the conference in a way where there were sort of some talks in, and uh, sharing of stories between all these different uh, faith entities that yeah. were all there together at COP. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's if you haven't, if you've never been to a cop, I would just say, you know, prepare to be completely overwhelmed <laughs> when you mm. when you do go, um, because there is concurrent programming going on in so many spaces. As I said, like mm. there's a U.S. center where there's programming going on. Uh, you know, multiple. I mean, most of the world's countries have pavilions there where they are doing programs or panel discussions, keynote speeches, and so on. And the negotiations are happening at the same time and, you know, closed door meetings are happening that, you know, we can't get into some of those spaces. Briefings are happening. Press conferences are happening. So all of this is going on at the same time. And the, the trick is to try to figure out, you know, going into it, what are what are your priorities? Like, what, what are my priorities? What are the things I, I most need to attend and, and be present for? Um, and then prioritizing those things. Um, and then as there's time, you know, attending and listening in on some of the other sessions. So, yeah, the, this was the first time there was a faith pavilion. Uh, so this is the 28th uh, convening. And uh, it, so it took it took 28 times <laughs> before we, <laughs> we uh, had a faith pavilion. But um, I think it was it, our, our hope is that it will not be the last time that, that this will be an important part of future convenings. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious to see how that push and pull, uh, you know, because as you've named, right, like 
you know, 85% of the world at least adheres uh, uh, to religious spiritual tradition. And, and so it's, it's already, it's already there. And I think to have um, something like uh, the faith pavilion embodied in that space, uh, you know, I'm sure is very critical to, um, you know, addressing the thing underneath the thing, uh, which, which is the, which is the yeah. gift, yeah. you know, which is the gift of your presence there and, and that sort of thing. Right. Um, and, and what it means to address, uh, this as Christians, uh, right. What does it mean to, to, you know, mm-hmm. that we actually name some things like greed, you know, avarice, you know, and we call that there are some, <laughs> we even say that there are some actions that we would say, uh, are are not good, but actually are evil uh, in in the world. And what would it, you know, what does that what does that mean? Sort of the more, like you said, the moral ode of it. So, yeah, yeah, I, and I think it's you know I think it's important to note um, that you know there 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 are those who would who would say that uh, you know we're just we're just out worshiping the trees, right? Like like we're not you know we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping the trees. Um, but I, I think that's really, you know, I, I think that's, that's a false, um, statement to make. I, the, the reality and the, what I feel from folks, you know, across religious traditions that, that I have spoken to in this work is, um, you know, the, that the create, that the creation is a reflection of the creator and that in fact, by, um, you know, protecting the God's creation, we are in fact honoring the creator and that, you know, we can't really, we can't claim to love, love God and desecrate God's creation, God's gift to us. And, and so I, you know, I want to push us to sort of think beyond that idea that, you know, we're worshiping the, the trees and the rocks and, the oceans and instead to consider it as, you know, we're safeguarding a gift that we've been given uh, for those who are coming after us. And I, I think that's a, you know, a really a, a much more compelling uh, reason to uh, to do this work. What were um, some of the things that you prioritized at this COP? What were the things that you were either excited to to sit in on and hear about or things you were antsy to hear, you know, how it was going to shake out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there were, you know, there were, there's sort of two big uh, things that were happening at the COP this year. I mean, there were lots of things happening, but two big things. The first uh, was um, what was called the loss and damage fund. And for folks who aren't familiar with that, um, this has been a fund that for decades uh, has been, under conversation uh, to to set up a fund that would essentially provide resources and funding to communities that are already uh, vulnerable to climate impacts. And so thinking about um, when we think about loss and damage or thinking about some of the tangible losses like loss of employment or um, loss of buildings, you know, homes, businesses, um, but there's also a sense in which there are intangible losses. And so one of the things we can think of is, you know, loss of culture. So we think about 
island nations that are very vulnerable to rising seawater and uh, some of which are making planned moves to other places to escape the rising seawater. But of course, along with that comes the loss of of their local culture um, that they've had in that place uh, since time immemorial. So um, it's been a really important conversation um, because we know that um, we we do want to mitigate. Uh, we want to reduce the amount of uh, carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. Um, but we also need to be realistic that folks are already being impacted. And so in the church, I think we think of this as uh, in some ways, this is charity versus justice. You know, this is um, providing monetary resources to compensate folks um, and communities for those losses. The other um, big discussion was around what was called the global stock take. And so this is supposed to happen every five years. And, and this is the first global stock take since um, the Paris Climate Agreement happened. And so ahead of this, there was a report that came out that that uh, had looked at all of the um, the plans that what are called the national determined contributions or the plans that nations have put together uh, in order to um, lower their own country emissions and then compare that to where we need to be in order to keep to that 1.5 degrees Celsius mark uh, that you mentioned earlier, Caleb. And and what it found was there was a gap <laughs> between uh, where we are and what the pledges have been and where we need to be to hold to the 1.5 degrees. So the global stock take then uh, part of the the job there is to address that gap, to look at, well, what do we need to do in order to uh, to fill that gap? And what um, what we've what was what came out of that, which was a sort of hard fought um, battle around language was uh, that we need to look at transitioning away from fossil fuels. So there was a lot of push for uh, a phase out of fossil fuels or a phase down of fossil fuels. Um, There could have been an outcome where there was no language around fossil fuels that was included in the final version at all. But where uh, it landed was a transition away. Um, Folks are, some folks in some countries specifically are still very unhappy with that language. and yet, at the same time, we also recognize it's the first time that fossil fuels have been recognized in that way uh, in in any um, anything coming out of uh, a COP. So it's, mm. it's significant for that reason. And I think it also sends a signal that fossil fuels are really on their way out and that we need to prepare for that adequately. And so... The next step is to look at what what a, a just and equitable transition away from fossil fuels um, means and looks like. So, so that's really where we are now. Yeah, that's really helpful to um, you know. That's really helpful to sort of try to grab because what I'm uh, you know I'm sort of obviously not being at at COP and 
probably even being there, it's probably, uh, you know, not the easiest thing to decipher even at the end of like, okay, what did we do? But, but collecting data, you know, on, on our end here, uh, you know, where I'm at sitting in my computer in Nashville, some sort of are saying like, well, this was, this was, you know, a, one of the greatest things that we've done at COP, you know, in more recent times be, because of this sort of addressing indirectly. And then obviously others are, are saying quite the opposite. Um, uh, one of the he- one of the headlines, uh, if you follow this at all, is that uh, you know before COP was that hey you know it's like uh, l- literally hosted by big oil conglomerates you know are sort of the the headlines and so what was sort of the the mixed bag of emotions going into this conference is that uh, right is is this good or a bad thing uh, that uh, you know on on one hand it's it's like well. Uh, Big oil's at the table. We need them to be at the table, but do do we want them with the talking stick? Uh, you know, do we want them to be the ones? And so yeah. there's 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 all of that kind of going on. And and then if our if our listeners aren't aware, right, that what what happens even at COP, like these aren't laws that are being mandated from from any sort of COP, uh, but these are these are just um, unbinding commitments that we're hoping that nations stick to, obviously. So. Yeah, just curious what your observations are there. And I know there's there is sort of the particulars of what does it mean? What's the difference between transitioning away and phasing out? And why are some people uh, upset about that difference or not or encouraged by it? Yeah. 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 That's that's a lot. Um Yeah. Any of that. <laughs> yeah. Any of that. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, you're right. I mean, you know, the UAE is is a, an oil producing country. Um, there were a lot of people who were very unhappy and not only that the cop was being hosted there, um, but also that the cop 28 president who was elected at this cop, uh, is the head of the national oil company. So, um, you can look at that and say, wow, those are huge conflicts of interest when, you know, part of what we wanted to talk about is, is uh, fossil fuel extraction and, and mm. phasing out fossil fuels. Um, and you're right. I mean, you know, oil lobbyists, fossil fuel lobbyists have always been at, at cops. So this is this no no change as far as that goes. Maybe there were more. Uh, I, I don't know the, 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 the change in numbers, but um, but it's true uh, that that there definitely are some conflicts of interest um, within that. And yet we also know that this is going to impact a lot of governments and it, you know this this phase this phase out phase down whatever language you want to use um is is going to impact a lot of governments so you know there's uh when we think about a just and equitable transition away from fossil fuels we have to look at which governments coffers are most dependent on fossil fuel revenues even to provide basic services for their citizens uh, versus the the nations that aren't as dependent on that, and also what is the relative wealth of nations? You know, you have a wealthy country like the U.S. or Canada or U.K. Um, that can handle a phase out more quickly than a country, um, you know, like for example Iraq, which is a very low wealth country but also very heavily dependent on uh, fossil fuels for uh, government revenues. So. 
So when we look at the timeline, you know, the, there's been a lot of talk about how we need to have a timeline that phases down um, country to country. So it so it isn't the same timeline for everyone. I appreciate, you know, kind of talking about this in a more nuanced way, because I think for a lot of um, folks, we're hoping for a specific outcome, right? And and for us in the United States, especially, we have a pretty narrow view of the world. Um, we're kind of like globally blind in a lot of ways. Um, wow. And so by coming to the table with people from all over the, the place um, and saying like, this is what is realistic for this part of the world. This is what is realistic for this part of the world and finding ways to collaborate and transition together and uh, maybe like support you know like is it is it beneficial for us to say to a country who's um, more dependent on fossil fuels for their citizens basic needs to say you need to switch right now because then we're we're creating suffering for citizens which isn't what we want either you know so by understanding that this conversation is way more nuanced than any of us are prepared to really sort of uh iron out um we can have some empathy and some grace, you know, as much as this is a very important issue and we need to have some action quickly. Uh, I think if we lose sight of the the humanhood, you know, of people all over the place and we're saying these actions need to happen before the the care for humans um, and the planet combined, but if we're actively harming people, we're not going to bring everyone along. You know, we can't like race forward and leave, leave people. We all have to hold hands together and walk, you know, in some way. And that just isn't easy to figure out, you know, and I'm sure you going to four of these have got to see, you know, great transitions throughout the years, but also some really hard and frustrating things. Um, but I'm thankful that we have space that we can at least all come to the table and be like, okay, what do we need to do? Yeah. And I, I would say that that's true also in the U.S., right? Like, I mean, we're, we're also in a fossil fuel producing country. Like, let's just name it as it is, right? And, and our scriptures very clearly say that we have to take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our neighbors. So um, even when we're thinking about the the transition away from fossil fuels in the U.S., you know, we have to be really cognizant of the fact that this impacts people, like you said, um, people who have, have helped to build this country and who now whose jobs are at risk of going away. And, and we have to be mindful of how to create a just transition for those workers as well. That's great. Yeah, I guess um, maybe, you know, we'll try to land the plane here, but uh, you know, I think often we think about, um, you know, these big conferences with world leaders as, you know, the ultimate spot. And it's kind of what we're talking about, I guess, where, where quote unquote, things get done. Uh, but obviously that isn't the whole story, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, and these these leaders are doing their parts. And uh, and but often, again, it's like it feels in the clouds. Right. And it's kind of what we're talking about is the real the real work often uh, you know, gets done at the grassroots level, uh, kind of where the gospel grows. And, um, yeah, you know, and you kind of mentioned this, uh, a, a little bit earlier, but, 
And I, I love for listeners to to uh, who have maybe never heard of IPL or maybe they only you know know a little bit of of ways that they can get involved and connect with you guys and and some practical steps that they could take. I know you mentioned the cool congregations. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so a couple of a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I would say to folks. You can go on our website and you can look to see if there is an affiliate in your state. You know, 40 out of 50 there is. So you're going to find a way to to connect. And and it's important to do so because uh, they're the folks who really know the context of what's going on in your state or in your community and can be very helpful with even practical tips. Like if you're trying to install solar uh, in your congregation, you know, they can help Mm. you with that information. So um, so Cool Congregations is um, a, a program that has been essentially with IPL from the beginning. Uh, we work directly with faith communities to teach them how to lower their, their energy use um, with very practical steps. And uh, we run this Cool Congregations Challenge every year where, you know, faith communities can, can submit a project that they're working on, and we have outside judges who look at all of the entries. Uh, this program has been growing like crazy over the years, so we're really proud of it. And we and we also uh, certify congregations based on their energy reduction. So anywhere from a 10% reduction all the way up to a 100% reduction, which miraculously some uh, congregations have been doing, you know, be, between working on their energy efficiency, installing solar, sometimes heat pumps, uh, and so on, you know, they're they're able to offset 100% of their energy use, wow. uh, which is amazing and something we should all be striving for. Um, and and as well, we have a, a program called Faith Climate Action Week. Um, we provide resources for uh, faith communities and faith leaders to preach and teach on uh, care for creation. And we're uh, we're we're just starting to roll out the information for our 2024 program for that, so folks should uh, look for that, and they can find it on our website as well. Um, and then, you know, what we what we're also looking to do is to inspire people to take action, and that happens at all levels. So, like you said, the COP is is a very small um, blip in the the calendar compared to you know, all the things that we can all be doing year round. And so looking at ways to be advocates um, in your local communities around, um, you know, good, um, for example, good renewable energy policy. You know, some places have prohibitive policies for solar. That means that faith communities can't even put solar up on their buildings. And, you know, the more we can advocate to change those policies for the better, um, the more progress that we'll make. Um, same at the state level, lots of things that are happening at the state level uh, in terms of energy policy um, in particular, but also transportation. Uh, it's really important to advocate for walkable, bikeable cities, lower the amount of driving that we're doing. If you are driving, tra- transitioning to electric vehicles is a good option. Advocate for public transportation, you know, all good um, policies because transportation actually makes up um, about a third of our carbon emissions, and people don't always realize that they think it's it's just about energy, and it's it's definitely not. Um, and then also the federal policy work is is really important. Um, 
some of the work that IPL has been doing, for example, for many years has been um, around clean cars. We want um, better uh, fuel efficiency standards. Um, it actually saves families money uh, at the pump when they are using um, combustion engines, gas-powered vehicles, um, but also looking for a good transportation policy federally, um, looking to advance uh, rules around cleaning up power plants, existing power plants, um, and, and also uh, advocating for the implementation of the um, funds from the Inflation Reduction Act, which actually benefit and there's lots of ways that faith communities can access funding to benefit their faith communities. And we have information about that on our website also. Mm-hmm. So I would just point to a few like very practical things that folks can be doing. Um, but I think, frankly, between us, the most important thing that people can do to, to act on climate change is to talk about it, because we know that um, the more that that this you know conversation arises from trusted messengers, um, could be you talking to your friends, talking to family members, talking within your faith community. Um, the more people actually recognize that it's safe to have this conversation and it's important to do so. Um, so we just we just want people to talk about it. <laughs> That's huge. That's named so well. So you heard it here, folks. Uh, check out Interfaith Power and Light online and. There's, there's so many good, I think that's what's so helpful is that uh, there are very practical, uh, n- the next right thing, choose the next right thing, the next right step, uh, and that can be for you as a person or your congregation, you know, get plugged in. I, I know from personal experience, I've connected with IPL uh, when we've done things in Michigan and in and, and a conference we did in Boston and and graciously they came out and spoke to, to people for us and we've talked, you know, and so... Uh, it's just the the next step for you listening to this is to uh, connect with uh, your most local chapter, see what's going on. And uh, Susan, thank you so much for talking with us. I know that you know we're on the on on the holiday season and everything. You've got so many things going on, and uh, I really appreciate it. So yeah, it's um, my pleasure. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you, Michaela, for having me on today. Friends, may your 2023 end with a deep sense of peace that only comes from resting in the hope that is the Christ who comes and is returning, a kingdom that is breaking into a groaning creation. We'll see you in 2024.